0: Welcome to this week's Arab Digest podcast. I'm William Law, editor of the Digest. My guest today is Andreas Krieg. Andreas is an assistant professor at the Defense Studies Department of King's College London and a strategic risk consultant working for governmental and commercial clients in the Middle East. Andreas, good to have you back in the podcast. Great to be back. Thank you. Now, as the war in Ukraine plays out, are you detecting significant shifts? in how the Gulf states are responding?
1: Yes and no. I think uh, the one, you know, traveling through the Gulf over the last couple of months, I've, you know, spoken to, I've been speaking to a range of policymakers and academics, and many of them are in- increasingly concerned about this war no longer just being a Ukrainian, European, Russian issue, but being one that could potentially escalate way beyond the boundaries, dragging in, you know, Far greater parts of the world economy, and potentially also, you know, seeing an escalation in in the nuclear field potentially, and then what would be the ramifications and consequences of that? So I think while early on this, um, you know, in in, in the, at the beginning of the war, most Gulfies were looking at this war as being something that is uh, somewhat geographically far removed and is a, is a European issue that they don't necessarily need to take a side on. They're now realizing that it's in their interest to make sure that it doesn't escalate further, and they. What they do is um, they're questioning what, uh, you know, what the European or the Western or NATO strategy is on Ukraine and whether the current um, cause or tra- trajectory that the West is going on is actually going to generate any tangible uh, strategic objectives and whether this could actually lead to some sort of resolution of the problem at, at hand or whether this is just a protracted forever war um, that has the potential of, you know, at every corner to potentially escalate and then drag in, um, you know, the global or the world international community more than they're already dragged in at the moment. So there's a lot of concern in that regard. Um, When it comes to the bipolarity, and that, that's the other concern that most Gulf co- countries have at the moment, is that they're being confronted, especially by the United States, but also from by the UK and other European partners to say, you know, you're either with us or you're against us. What's your position? We want you to take a very clear position on this war. And I think this is something that for most Gulf countries is extremely difficult uh, because they do have... Uh, strong ties with russia and they also realize that the the soft power the appeal of what the united states stands for um and the u.s liberal liberal project the liberal world order is not necessarily delivering for them and they are diversifying away and that's particularly true for the united arab emirates uh, to an extent to uh, it's true for saudi arabia as well uh, but even the smaller states, even Kuwait and, and Oman are saying, you know, we, we don't want to take a side on this because this is not our war. Uh, we, we will take a side on de-escalation, making sure that this doesn't escalate further. But uh, beyond that, we, we don't want to be confronted with that choice. And I think the narrative that's coming, particularly out of Washington, and we've seen much of that coming out from Democrats over the last couple of weeks where they've confronted, um, the you know, particularly Saudi Arabia, of saying you, you you're siding with Russia because you're not siding with us. Um and and that sort of narrative is not very helpful. Uh, it's polarizing and is something that um co- causes a lot of confusion in the Gulf. Um, even among countries like Qatar, which have all traditionally been at least over the last, uh, you know, eight nine years, have been very very pro Western and have pretty much taken the Western position on every issue, uh, or an American position on every issue. Even they are saying that it might be unhealthy to be always confronted with that zero sum, uh, sort of um choice of saying you're either with us or against us, because it's a false dichotomy in the end of the day. Um, and there, the other issue is that I think the United States don't necessarily realize how limited their power is or how limited their ability is to actually rein in countries. Um, the metrics of power that the United States choose, which is mostly military-centric, um, is is kind of distorting the the real influence that the United States have in this part of the world, in the Middle East but also beyond that. And uh, I think Afghanistan, what happened last year, uh, certainly was another dent in that reputation. And the Americans haven't really, you know, they need a moment of reckoning to actually um, to kind of reconsider how they want to be seen in the world and whether what they're standing for in the world, whether this is something that people want to buy in. And I think that the Gulf countries increasingly or decreasingly uh, want want to actually buy into that narrative of and, and and hence hence um are are diversified towards the russians towards china um but also other parts of the world and the problem is that most most of the analysis of the middle east is done through western institutions by western analysts who also take a very western centric point of view and cannot understand that these gulf countries you know they they are in a different part of the world they i would call them you know they're part of this Buffistan, uh, buffer zone between east and west and if you look particularly at the dichotomy of um, you know the bipolarity between China and and the West. Then the Gulf is very much on the frontier between between these two spheres of influence, and they can't potentially they can't really choose. They shouldn't choose because it it wouldn't be in their national interest.
0: Yes, precisely. You cannot force them to choose.
1: The idea that America doesn't allow these countries, even the bigger ones, even Saudi Arabia and the UAE, doesn't allow them to actually develop their own national interest and pursue policies in their own national interest is also something that most Gulfies don't understand. And what is quite interesting is that, you know, most Gulfies kind of are aligned on this. Um, you know, they, there might be a lot of disagreement between Qatar and the UAE or uh, Saudi and the UAE. But when it comes to their right to pursue their own national interest, then this is something that um, that most of the Gulf uh, countries really, uh, you know, are aligned on. And and that, that kind of translates into this, into the Ukraine war. Um, the credibility of the, the project that, um you know the, that NATO started in supporting ukraine um whether you know i think most gulf countries now have come around and said this is a you know this is a very legitimate thing to support the ukraine and the the the, the russian aggression is illegitimate uh, and that's true for even saudi and the uae who've who've, who've kind of made that uh, made that case so uh you know if 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 you if, if, this thing aside they're saying what is it that you're trying to achieve and how do we know that we that we are on a de-escalatory off ramp um, that will bring this war to an end because we don't want a protracted conflict.
0: Mm, yeah, and um, the, the, it's interesting what you make the point about America's response. It's a very sort of Cold War old old response to to the Gulfies and and and, and this idea that somehow they should be client states uh, is something that this new generation of leaders in the Gulf you know, emphatically reject. But but I wanted to ask you about Qatar. You mentioned the the Qataris they have as you said been much more openly supportive of ukraine is that playing to their advantage or is there a danger
1: of a blowback i think for kuwait and for the countries their stance there is is one which is based on values which is you know the uh, standing up for um, territorial integrity sovereignty um and and international law and i think yeah, obviously both Qatar and Kuwait have experienced being on the receiving end of uh, of international law breaches and aggression. Uh, Kuwait, from uh, on the side of uh, of Iraq and and Qatar, more recently, um, being exposed to this from from its neighbours, um, direct neighbours. And so, it, you know, the, the countries have taken a very very much a, an ideological stance here of saying, you know, we we have to be on the side of Ukraine on this because this is illegitimate, it's illegal, and if we don't stand up. For it in Ukraine, we can't stand up it uh, stand up for it elsewhere. Um, but you know the countries at the same time are saying you know we are standing up for international law wherever it is, and if there are breaches such as in Palestine, for example, we're standing up for it as well. But they're saying if we stand up for Ukraine, we also have to stand up for Palestine, and that's kind of, again, a lot of criticism I've heard across the Gulf, is uh, what Gulf is saying, yeah, why 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 are you so adamant to protect the rights? Of Ukrainians but not very interested in protecting the rights of Palestinians uh, and that is directed towards the United States and, and Europe more widely but the countries in this crisis have probably burned a couple of bridges with Russia um, hence why the emir the country emir, uh, sat down with Putin last week to kind of try to ensure that that they are on somewhat neutral terms, at least, with Russia, because as of late they were not on neutral terms. I think that the, the Russians were looking at Qatar as extremely uh, pro-Western and potentially too pro-Western, uh, because also Russia is taking a very bipolar uh, approach to this. They're saying you're either with us or you're against us. And the countries have very firmly been with uh, the West and in, in the Western camp. And while this serves ver- them very well in Washington, it could potentially cause problems down the road. And I think the countries are a bit concerned that with the World Cup coming up, um, that, you know, there are a lot of vulnerabilities in the cyberspace. And if you ask me what the greatest vulnerability for Qatar's World Cup is, it's probably in the cyber domain. You know, the the, the greatest malign uh, cyber information actor in the world is Russia. And so should the Russians decide to kind of disrupt the World Cup, which they see as a, a Western centric global event, from which they've been excluded from, you know, they might decide to to launch some sabotage, cyber sabotage attacks. Um, and so the countries are a bit concerned about this, so they want to make sure that the, the Russians are uh, you know the, the russias and Qatar are somewhat on on good terms. Um, but beyond that um it''s a, it's, a, it's an en- energy relationship, and obviously the Ukraine crisis have, has helped and will help the countries to basically sell more of their energy at the expense of Russia. So while Russian exports will di- you know, will be diversified further east. Um, away from the West, I think uh, what we see now is that Qatar in particular and their energies they will obviously with the expansion of the of the north field uh, will see many of these exports being exported towards the west on top of all these exports that are already going east so um, a- again, here is it we see a pivot of uh, of Qatar towards the West in that respect. There are some risks in there, but we also shouldn 't forget that unlike the UAE or unlike uh, Saudi Arabia. Qatar never had a very intimate relationship with Russia. This was always a very pragmatic one. It was one that revolved around energy. And um, ideologically speaking, if you look at all the crises in the region, uh, you know, the Qataris and the Russians were always on opposite ends. When it comes to Libya, they are on the other side. When it comes to Syria, Qatar is on the other side. So ideologically, geopolitically speaking, this is not a, a sort of partnership that is very similar to the one between the UAE and Russia, for example. I mean, for the UAE, there, it is an ideological, it's a value-based relationship. Between Russia and the UAE, they, you know, look at most of the crises in the region from the same sort of angle, and um, and also kind of want to pursue the same objectives in the region when it comes to authoritarianism, uh, clamping down on civil society. And the narratives are very similar. And Qatar, uh, it obviously doesn't have that sort of alignment with the Russians.
0: Now you've you've touched on this, but this uh, really tense situation, this war of words between Washington and Riyadh. Over the Saudi-led OPEC Plus decision to cut production by two million barrels per day, how deep is the rupture, and what sort of impact will it have moving forward?
1: No, the rupture is real, and I think it has to do with the fact that um, we we shouldn't really assign all of this to 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 OPEC. Obviously, OPEC is 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 a problem. I think there is. There are probably three motives behind the decision to cut production. Uh, one is certainly, and I think is the primary one, is about stabilizing markets and, and ensuring that you know you have a, a a relatively high oil price that will allow a windfall of of cash coming into Saudi Arabia that they can use to invest. But there is this other element of, um, obviously of interfering with with the midterm elections and sending a signal, uh, or kind of weakening an already weakened uh U- US president Biden and the the third one is certainly also sending a positive signal towards Russia but you know these things obviously get messed up uh and I think the war of a narrative that has uh, really evolved from this decision from both sides the Saudi side and, the, and and from Washington as well is kind of a a conflict that is between the democrats in particular and Saudi Arabia I mean most of they've taken obviously a very pro Active position, a very uh, loud position as well. Um, The 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 threats that were issued, the the narratives that came out of the Democratic Party were were extremely surprisingly anti-Saudi. Um, there are some GOP and Republican lawmakers as well who've come out against Saudi Arabia on this decision. But it's you know it shows obviously that there is you know ideologically speaking, Saudi and the Democratic Party they they're not aligned, and uh, it's still a this is still a remnant or a um, a consequence of the Khashoggi affair, this hasn't uh, disappeared. And I think whatever people are saying, because as of late, you know, after B- Biden went to Tahrir, people were saying, oh, this this relationship is now on, uh, is going to change. You know, there's it, there's clearly an outreach. There's a degree of normalization going on. and um, That, that might have been true, but we shouldn't forget that the Khashoggi affair, the murder of Khashoggi and NBS's direct involvement in this will never Disappear. This will be a dagger that will be hanging over that relationship until MBS leaves, which will be, you know, decades from now. Um, And whenever there is an issue with Saudi Arabia, this whole thing will come up again. And I think it will be impossible for MBS to properly mend ties with Washington. And the OPEC decision is just another realization among Democrats in particular, but more widely in America, of saying Saudi Arabia is not an ally. But Saudi Arabia was never an ally. Traditionally speaking, uh, no US president has ever looked at Saudi Arabia as an ally. They're a partner. It's a pragmatic uh, relationship that's based on interests, not based on values. And uh, in, in in this regard, one has to always be careful in terms of uh, how one c- characterizes that relationship. And I, I also think that uh, the Saudis uh, in this regard have never really made any any promises. They, they obviously they want to have US weaponry to defend themselves. Always, you know, Washington has told Saudi Arabia times again, definitely since the Obama years, that they have to defend themselves. They are on their own. Um, the U.S. will lead from behind. They will give them the support they need, but in the end of the day, they need to design their foreign and security policy, in particular, on their own with as little U.S. support as possible. And so the Saudis have done that, and they've done it as they see fit. So I think it's 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 not the right time to now say, oh, what? How dare you uh, developing your, your ties with with other. Uh, with other partners, again, it goes back to the narrative of being being a vessel state. Saudi Arabia isn't that; uh, it has never been that. And to be honest, the oil weapon has been used time and again by Saudi Arabia since at least the seventies, and it's 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 a very powerful leverage that they will continue using when they see fit. Um, but it should also lead in in America; it should lead to some reckoning of saying, okay, if that's the case then what does that mean for our relationship with the Gulf or our relationship with Saudi Arabia? And I think there is the problem. I think there isn't a grand strategic approach. There isn't a real understanding and alignment of ends, ways, and means of what it is that the United States want to achieve in the long term, in the Gulf, and in particular with Saudi Arabia. There is no policy. And, you know, once we'll have a new president, most likely, in 2025, um, what will that policy be? Is there any anything that is sustainable? Is there anything that is... Enduring in that relationship and uh, I find it very hard to to put, put my finger at it and say, you know This is what America stands for and that's also a problem for the Saudis because they don't know what America stands for And I think what we will see uh, Moving forward is that we see this relationship growing apart more and more just because there are alternatives now for the Gulf and for Saudi Arabia In particular, you don't need to side with America
0: Yeah, I think you put your finger right on it, which is this complete lack of strategy Emanating from Washington in how it should deal with the Gulf states and particularly Saudi Arabia moving forward. Uh, what I find interesting, though, is that, you know, this, there's, there's this terrific spat between the Saudis and, 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 and Washington. Once again, the UAE, which obviously is a big player in, in OPEC, escapes very uh, much, much scrutiny, as has happened with the Yemen wars, the Saudis took all the flock in terms of their handling of the Yemen war, the Emiratis have a case to answer in terms of how they have uh, played out the war. But do you think that Mohammed bin Zayed, who always plays the advantage, there is advantage for him in this um, current ongoing dispute between Washington and Riyadh?
1: Oh, 100 percent. I think for, yeah, definitely over the last decade, whenever there was a problem between the U.S. and the Gulf, Uh, It's mostly a problem between the U.S. and Saudi Arabia. Uh, And then the other smaller states around have always been ignored. Uh, And the the Emiratis have absolutely benefited from this. I I would call them, you MBZ, Mohammed bin Zayed, is very much a a Teflon guy. Nothing ever sticks. And um, that's that's true over Yemen, true over Libya. Um, The Emiratis have time and again played a role, much worse than the Saudis, by the way, of not being a partner. They've been pushing back much longer than the Saudis have against you know, what were directives coming from Washington or the West, and still they've gotten away with it. I think much of it has to do with communication strategy. I think the Emiratis are much better in political communication. I think they have more extensive, more enduring partnerships and information networks across Western capitals, but Washington in particular. Um, The, uh, the Emiratis have ways to feed in their policy objectives and, and feeding in their narrative into very senior Institutions across Washington across the Western world, and thereby have have found ways below you know outside of the public sphere to actually uh, communicate and obviously we've got all the evidence of lobbying and and, and p r firms The Saudis, on the other hand, don't have any of these genuine uh, networks; they used to have that i mean there were you know a lot of senior Saudis like al Jair for example who who used to be in key positions who had great personal relationships with people in Washington who could feed. Uh, you know, uh, behind closed doors, certain narratives of where the kingdom is going, why they're doing what they're doing, explaining themselves. Um, but many of these relationships have been have been disrupted, um, or have have, have basically collapsed uh, since uh, two thousand and fifteen onwards, and uh, definitely since two thousand eighteen in the Khashoggi affair. A lot of the the Saudis with great relationships in Washington have been taken out by MBS. Uh, some of them have fled the country. Um, so. You know, in that regard, Saudi Arabia doesn't have these sort of enduring relationships anymore and are unable to communicate well. And beyond that, um, the Emiratis have been very good at letting the Saudi take the flak first, which obviously, you know, when, when criticism, whoever is being targeted first by criticism is the guy with whom the criticism will stick. So on the OPEC decision, it was the Saudis who take, took the flak and the Emiratis didn't say anything. And until a couple of days later, when they were saying we're staying with Saudi Arabia, but at that point nobody really cared because this war over narratives had already escalated and the Saudis were already in the line of fire. And the Emiratis are using they 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 using networks a lot more subtly. They don't necess- There's a lot of plausible deniability in what they're doing. Um, you know, if you look at sanctions evasion, in particular, I think this is a a key uh, thing to to remember that for that the the Emiratis are offering the Russians ways to to bypass sanctions. And they have do, doing that proactively. That's not a passive thing. This is something that's been encouraged by MBZ's brother. Uh, and um, this is something that's, that's, that's been happening for a long time and the, the Emiratis got away with it because they're not necessarily doing it directly through the state. While in Saudi Arabia, everything to do with oil is done by the oil minister. It's a, it's a representative of the state. While the Emiratis, what they do is they use networks that are not they're tied into the state, but they're not part of the state. Um, So it's all about how you design statecraft and how you communicate. I think the Emiratis are much better at this. Mm, Yes, they are indeed. And and, uh, as you said, MBZ plays the game and
0: plays it very, very effectively. Now, You've touched on the World Cup, and that's a fascinating thought, that the real threat could be this uh, disruption, uh, cyber disruption, which the Russians are very good at. But look, the Qataris have faced criticism for their treatment of the Tens of thousands of migrant workers who, who built the uh, the infrastructure. They spent somewhere in the neighborhood of 220 billion on it. And to put that into perspective, the previous most expensive was 15 billion. And now, granted, much of that infrastructure uh, is part of their 2030 vision plan. But the stadiums, um, the stadiums cost more than 6.5 billion. That's still an eye watering amount. So.
1: Have the Qataris, Andreas, got what they wanted with the World Cup? I, I think the jury is still out. We'll have to see uh, at the end of the World Cup what you know what the impact is going to be. Uh, let's put it this way. I mean, the, the 200x billion uh, pounds that were spent over the last 12 years or so um, have to be seen and understood within the wider Agenda 2030 part of the development plan. They've used the World Cup as an excuse with clear deadlines to actually deliver uh, infrastructure projects that were necessary. I mean, Qatar, 10 years ago, even you know, when I moved to Qatar in 2013, was a very different country from what it is today in terms of infrastructure, in terms of uh, you know uh, everything that, that the country had to offer. And that needed to change. And it had to change. And it, it probably changed as quickly as it did because of the World Cup, because there was a clear deadline so the, the countries knew they had to deliver for it. Um, and I think we have to see it in this context. And I think most countries will see it as national development rather than a development for the World Cup. But the question is really what Qatar wanted is to be seen as a more positive player in the world. Um, you know, getting its name out, um, you know, be put on the map. Uh, that certainly happened, but I think you know, in not necessarily in a positive light. But let's let's put it this way. I mean, in 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 the wider world, I think it's a very positive development. Qatar has been very positively received in in South America and Africa and Asia, uh, and also in North America. I mean, in the United States in particular, that there's not been that criticism. I think. Europe is kind of a, a, um, the outsider here, which is obviously a huge issue because Qatar has a very important relationship with Europe. But I think the, we, 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 living in Europe, we think that the entire coverage of Qatar is negatively globally. It isn't. Uh, it is very much a UK, French, German uh, kind of issue, and, uh, and Scandinavian as well. And the activism that has lacked or efficacy that has led to very good reforms and very important reforms in Qatar, uh, was absolutely necessary. I think it was important that pressure was put upon Qatar because they responded in the end and and, and and started some of these these reforms. But it's this advocacy has now turned into some sort of activism to basically say anything Qatar is toxic. And I think that is something that is probably there to stay uh, because for most Europeans at the moment, you know, who don't know the Gulf, don't understand Qatar, don't know what they stand for and are being fed certain narratives from the media, um, we'll probably look at Qatar... Uh, with a lot more negative eyes than they would have done uh, 10 years ago. So in, in terms of image building, I'm not sure, uh, you know, the jury is still out long term where, where this is going to go and uh, what um, and, and how it will be perceived. But I would say this, that in terms of development for the country, I think it's been very, very positive. Because even the, the changes in the kafala system, changes in the labor uh, in the labor law in the country have been necessary and very important developments for the country. And as such, wouldn't have been possible without the pressure and without the World Cup. I think Qatar has become a better country because of the World Cup and because of that activism and because of all the negative coverage. But obviously, and then that's the other question is to what extent will coverage change about Qatar once the World Cup is over? Uh, you know, and I think it's, you know, it's been for the country, it's been very, very uh, exhausting to actually constantly try to fight that game of saying we're doing something, but yeah, is it enough? And even when it is enough, you're still going to get criticized. the countries weren't weren't up for it. I think they didn't understand how much scrutiny they would be put under and what what it means to actually be put on the map and what the negative ramifications of of being in the limelight actually are. But I'd say take a more global look. Um, I think for Qatar, this has been very will be very positive. Uh, looking at Africa, Middle East, like most Middle Easterners are uh, absolutely excited for this World Cup. Uh, you know, it, it, it will be, we'll have to take a global view on this and, and see after the World Cup how, how the narratives and how the coverage will change. Mm.
0: I, I want to ask you now about the political mess in the UK uh, this week. Again, Whitehall in chaos, the Tory meltdown, the Prime Minister resigning after 44 days in office. What sort of damage is that doing to Britain in the Gulf and the wider Middle East? Uh, we were once, and not that long ago, a significant presence, a valued ally,
1: is that true anymore? Yeah, I I think what I've learned over the last five years of, six years of chaos in UK politics is that whatever happens in Whitehall and Westminster doesn't necessarily change the trajectory of where the UK is going. So day-to-day politics are not necessarily what shapes the relationship between Britain and the Gulf. Um, It's certainly, you know, it, it looks embarrassing to the world, uh, the idea of global Britain is still just a very empty narrative that needs to be delivered and certainly cannot be delivered by you know, the sort of people who are in government now. And you know, the, I think the Tory party in itself is in a process of decay. Uh, and, you know, whatever is going to come, whoever is going to fill in for, for list Trust moving forward will be more obsessed with internal politics than external politics. Nonetheless, Britain has certain relationships and networks in that part of the world that are very unique. And during the funeral of uh, Queen Elizabeth, I realized how important the royal family is actually in, in, in the relationship with the Gulf in particular, how important it is as a vehicle to to build relationships, maintain relationships, having someone in on the throne for decades who is partnering with counterparts, royal counterparts in the Gulf for decades as well, who've been in power for decades as well. These are kind of enduring relationships that are much bigger than day-to-day politics. And I think this is a, is an advantage for Britain. Beyond that, I think the institutional relationships, and I think, you know, if you look at foreign and security policy of the UK, it's not run by Whitehall or Westminster. It's, it's run by, by, you know, the, the, the deeper state institutions, particularly the relationship with the Middle East. Uh, and I think the intelligence services in this country, and you know, they, they kind of dictate, the, they are the enduring deep state of this country. Uh, and this is completely decoupled from what's going on in, in Westminster. So, there, you know, it, as as embarrassing as it looks, I think Britain has networks in place that no other European country has. It, it has the legacy that no European country has. So it's the question of what, what you're going to do with it. I think the future of the, of these relationships and the future of these networks will be decided and determined by the extent to which they can operate autonomously. So I think it should know i think british engagement in the middle east british engagement in the gulf shouldn't be led any more by government uh, or state but should be led by all these other non state relationships that we have academia is in, in immensely important for for education in the gulf british academia it's an amazing tool of soft power um financial institutions very important investments even even anything to do with trade there is an energy relationship there are so many other relationships that Britain can use, and they're run by private corporations or private entities, non-state entities. It's just important that these entities are being encouraged and left, left alone by the state to actually advance interests, which are essentially uh, a British interest. And I think we have to take a much bigger whole-of-nation approach to understanding the British uh, presence and influence in the Gulf. Uh, and, uh, and one last thing, I think, in comparison to the United States, uh, again, when you speak to golfies about this, the UK is a lot more of a predictable partner. The UK, because of its, you know, despite all the chaos in Whitehall, it has a certain direction. You know where the UK is going to be in 10 years time. Washington changes sometimes at a, on a four year basis or at least at an, on an eight year basis. And it changes changes from one extreme to the other extreme. Um, this is not going to happen in, in, in the UK. It is a very very stable country with a very stable grand strategy, which is currently being redesigned to an extent, but it, it, it gives you predictability. And I think that's something that uh, countries in the Gulf uh, very much appreciate.
0: Mm, that's interesting. Yes, the uh, the relationship withstands the, the political uh, instability that uh, we've been going through now for, well, gosh, for such a long time and may continue to go through for a little while yet. But finally, Andres, I'm not going to let you go without you giving our listeners, a snapshot of a book you have coming out with a, a very arresting title, Subversion, the Strategic Weaponization of Narratives.
1: Give us that snapshot. Right, snapshot. So this book is been, I've been writing it over the last four or five years, was inspired by the Gulf crisis in terms of weaponized narratives and what it, what, how powerful weaponized narratives can be to shift policy and change how uh, uh, people think and how policymakers make policy. But it obviously then transpired into something much bigger. I'm looking at three case studies, uh, Russia, uh, the United Arab Emirates and China as as disinformation, not only disinformation warriors, but information warriors who weaponize narratives, not just disinformation, but broadly narratives to kind of reflexively, reflectively control how populations think. It's about how information can be used by external actors to mobilize civil society or demobilize civil society to make people in countries do something that they otherwise wouldn't do without them knowing that they're being instrumentalized. And obviously with a lot of evidence from how the Russians are doing it, trying to disrupt and polarize civil society in the West. Um, But we have a lot of evidence also for the UAE doing the same thing across the Arab world, across the Middle East, how they've been in Egypt or in Tunisia, um, have been mobilizing uh, civil society for, for or against particular causes. I think the UAE have been very instrumental in the in the e- Egyptian coup in 2013, which is all about subverting discourse, subverting civil society, instrumentalizing, mobilizing civil society to move against the Muslim Brotherhood, and thereby creating a pretext for uh, a seizure coup and seize power. And that's kind of where subversion is coming from. So it's not just social media, weaponization on, of narratives on social media, but it's how that transpires and spills over into the public do- in the public domain, into the physical domain, um, we've seen that with the Russians in in during the uh, during the elections in twenty sixteen and twenty twenty, they've interfered in civil society and discourse in the United States. Uh, that transpired from polarized discourse on civils uh, on social media to discourse and polarization and mobilization on the streets, where you had protesters in some smaller towns in the Midwest. You had protesters pro Trump and against Trump, both being mobilized by bots and trolls that were paid for. By Russians, um, who were staging then a protest, which with kind of violent clashes from both sides, everything kind of steered uh up and and somewhat indirectly controlled by by Russia, uh, and that is something that is is a vulnerability in the twenty first century that particular liberal democracies are very much exposed uh, to, and so I'm saying this is a, a way of warfare. We need to look at it with the severity of it being an act of war, and um, as such, we need to uh, we need to you know create resilience against it. Um, but we have to first of all accept the problem that there is a problem. Um, and this is not just some some adjunct to other military operations because in amid the Ukraine war, we're con- we now looking back at conventional warfighting and kinetic warfare and we're obsessed with it. Uh, when in reality, this war in Ukraine didn't start in 2022, it's, it probably didn't even start in 2014, but it's been an, an ongoing subversion operation by the Russians in Ukraine that has mobilized people in Eastern Ukraine To kind of create their own little breakaway regions, so that is it's part of a long-term process that draws in a variety of different uh, actors, and not just on social media or not just media, but also policymakers, think tankers, experts, uh, you name it. And so I think it's about it's about the battle for um for you know the battle in the information environment. Really, this is what this book is all about. It's coming out in twenty twenty three, early twenty three. I'm very happy to come back to talk about it in more depth.
0: Well, I'll definitely uh, have you back to do that, Andres. And uh, you know what I think is interesting is that, you know, our traditional enemies, uh, China and Russia, you mentioned, but number three, the UAE has a very big player in, the, in this uh, new uh, weaponized war of narratives. Fascinating stuff. That, thank you so much. Thank you. You've been listening to the Arab Digest podcast. My guest today was Andres Krieg an assistant professor at the Defense Studies Department of King's College, London. His latest book, Subversion, The Strategic Weaponization of Narratives, published by Georgetown University Press, will be released shortly. Keep an eye out for it. We launched our podcast in 2020, and two years on, we're about to hit 100,000 listens, with an audience in countries right around the world. So, a big thanks to all our listeners. And if you're a first-timer, check out our podcast library on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, Amazon, and other platforms. In addition to our podcasts, the Arab Digest daily newsletter features the very best of Middle East experts, contributors like Andres. If you'd like a free trial to the newsletter, simply go to arabdigest.org. And if you enjoy what you find and want to join the club after your free trial period has ended, we're offering special rates to students, academics, and retirees. And subscriptions are now available to university libraries. If you're a student or academic, check if your university library has an Arab Digest subscription. If so, you can access the Digest for free. And if not, ask your library to consider getting one. Check us out on ArabDigest.org and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm William Law, editor of the Arab Digest, essential reading from independent sources.